Let's pray as we stand. Almighty God, we thank you for your kindness to us, expressed in so many good gifts to us. Lord, we thank you for these gifts that have been given this evening and those given through the week too. We thank you most of all, Lord, though, for your Son, Jesus Christ. And we ask that you might take these gifts now and use them to proclaim that great good news that Jesus saves across this city of Nottingham, around this country and across the globe the many more might turn and put their trust in him. Lord, we pray as we come to your word now, that you would be present with us by your spirit. Soften our hearts, that where we find your word difficult or disturbing, would you lead us to clarity and understanding. And Lord, by your spirit, would you comfort us this evening, that we might leave this place rejoicing in who you are, and in who you have made us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, please do uh, take a seat, and please keep your Bibles open at uh, Exodus 3 and 4. Well, that was dramatic, wasn't it? Well, they're probably the most famous notes in all of Western classical music. And the opening to to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony is a perfect example of what's called a motif, an idea or or a phrase that repeats throughout a piece of art. Uh, You see, those iconic notes continue through the whole symphony. We hear them again and again played on different instruments with a slightly different rhythm or at a different pitch, but each occurrence deliberately echoing and recalling those famous opening bars. And you get it in films too. Just think of the music in Jaws every time the killer shark approaches, or Darth Vader's theme every time evil is near in Star Wars. And there are visual motifs as well. Snakes in Indiana Jones. Reminders of our our hero's weakness and vulnerability. Mirrors in Alfred Hitchcock's films point towards a complex duality in characters. They're not easily categorized as goodies or baddies. And apparently, every time you see an orange in the Godfather films, someone's about to die. Some of the best motifs, though, take a theme and then develop it constantly referring back to the original, but also exploring how it might play out in a new scenario or or a new context. Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, for example, doesn't just repeat those opening notes. It it varies them. It develops them. It it fleshes out the theme and adds richness and, and depth. And it's that sort of motif that we will see over and over again as we make our way through the book of Exodus in the coming months. Indeed, our passage tonight is is packed full of moments that are significant, not only in the immediate context of of the story of Moses and the ancient Israelites, but also moments that will become motifs, repeated and, and developed throughout the whole story of Scripture. What we will see from our, our passage this evening will be foundational for all that is to follow in the great sweep of scripture. 
What we hear in these verses will, will echo on through the ages until the great plan of our sovereign God reaches its glorious climax. These are the notes that will be threaded through the whole symphony. So listen well as we read again from the beginning of chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now, we could begin by noting that that Moses is just the next in a very long line of shepherds who will lead God's people. That's certainly a theme that will come up again. Corralling and, and cajoling and caring for a flock of stubborn and silly sheep, it seems, is excellent training for leading God's people. But our primary focus here isn't Moses. It's God the God who calls him. Because these verses are central to our understanding of who God is. Central to our understanding of of his ways in this world and his dealings with us, his people. From this moment on, the, the scriptures will take the picture of God that we find here and we'll develop it. We'll dig into it, explore it, and expound it. Because this is our God. And there can be no more important activity for us, his creatures, than to look on him and marvel that he has made himself known to us. Because that's the wonder of the burning bush, that the holy God in in his white-hot purity and righteousness, that that God would draw near to Moses would call him over and and invite him into conversation, into relationship. Sure, there's distance. We'll see time and again that that this holy God mustn't be approached lightly or or flippantly. But the whole episode only happens in the first place because God chooses to show himself to Moses, chooses to reveal something of who he is. God chooses to come close to Moses. Moses. The awesome, majestic, all-powerful creator steps into his creation and opens the eyes of his creatures that he might be seen, that he might be known. Oh, that is a a powerful motif that, that forms the very basis of scripture itself. 
that we might meet here in these pages, just as Moses did in those branches, that we might meet with the living God. And it soon becomes very clear that, that this is no distant deity. Rather, he is a God who desires to be involved in what he has made. A God who remains active and, and present in his creation. Acting to bring about his pleasing and, and perfect will. Let's read on from verse 7. The Lord said, I, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. I wonder, did you notice all the times that, that God said, I, there, I have seen, I have heard, I am concerned, and so I have come down. Just like we saw last week, the, the real hero of the book of Exodus isn't Moses, it's God. God is the one who is at work to save his people. God is the one who is at work to bring justice and freedom for the oppressed. Moses is, is his instrument for doing that. Look at, at verse 10. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But it is God who is doing the saving. And that couldn't be clearer when Moses starts to fret that he may not be up to the task. Verse 11, who am I, he says, that I should go to Pharaoh? Now just think God could have answered that question with, with all sorts of encouraging reminders about who Moses was. You're the perfect candidate, Moses. You understand the, the Egyptian ways and culture, and yet you're also a Hebrew. You've already shown yourself to be passionate about tackling injustice, ready to lead your people. Moses, you'll be great. But God says none of that. Because ultimately, it won't be Moses who's doing the saving. Instead, verse 12, God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Who am I, says Moses? No says the Lord. Who am I? That's what matters. I will be with you, and I will do this. You'll know it was me, well, well because it will happen. My people will come out of Egypt, and they will worship me. I will do this. Verse 13, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? You might remember back at the, the end of chapter 2, Moses uh, has already been rejected as a leader by the Israelites. Perhaps he's, he's worried that the same will happen again. 
He certainly needs reassurance. Okay, you'll do the saving, he essentially says to God. But who are you? It's a bold question. But it's one that we should be very thankful Moses asked. Because the response is is one of the moments of God's self-revelation to his people. What we are about to read will form the first part of of a musical phrase that will keep resurfacing throughout the great story of salvation. Let's read it again now. And friends, let these words stick in your head because you'll hear them echo down through history. Verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. I am who I am. This is God's name, his personal name, not just his his title or his designation. This is his name given only to his people. The Hebrew word for it is where we get the word Yahweh from. It's just a version of the verb to be. And this name reveals so much about who this God is. He is. He just is. He has no no peers, needs no external reference. He has always been who he is, is now who he is, and will be who he is for all eternity. For Moses and, and for the ancient Israelites, and indeed for us, this should be a great comfort. This God, whom their forefathers had known, this God is the same God. He will not change. He will not deviate from his stated purpose, from his declared intention. And the Lord goes on to to spell out for Moses just what that means for, for ancient Israel and Egypt. Just what the God who is will do when his people are held captive. Verse 18, the elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. Pharaoh may be stubborn. He may be powerful. He may hold the lives of the Israelites in his hands. 
but he is not. I am. I am will not be thwarted. The king of Egypt will not let the Israelites go unless a mighty hand compels him. And so I am will stretch out his mighty hand and compel him. There's much more to come in this story and and we will get to dig deep into what it means for this God to be Yahweh. But right here, as he commissions Moses, God drops all the spoilers. There is only one way this story will end. Only one winner can emerge. And it won't be Pharaoh. And what follows is is Moses asking time and again for reassurance. He is not keen to confront the king of Egypt. But Yahweh has spoken. And Yahweh has decided And so Yahweh gives Moses signs and and a helper in his brother Aaron. And you know, we may be intrigued by those signs. It's not often that God does this sort of thing. But we must recognize that they are just that, signs. In generations to come, no ancient Israelite would point back to these signs as an explanation of who their God is. Who is our God? Oh, he's the God who turns sticks into snakes and healthy hands into leprous hands and then turns them back again. No. They'd have pointed instead to the Exodus. Our God is the one who stretched out his mighty hand against the king of Egypt and brought about our deliverance. That's what the signs pointed towards. That's where this is is really all heading. And so that's why I want to spend the rest of our time this evening looking at the end of chapter 4. Because it's there that we hear the second part of our musical motif. The first was, was that God is who he is. He will do what he will do, and no one will stand in his way. But the second theme that we will encounter again and again in Scripture is just what happens when that God meets people. People who who do not recognize him for who he is. People who do not acknowledge him as God. People who do not submit to his rule in their lives. That is a theme that will will play out a billion times over. And it's the verses at the end of chapter 4 that set the pattern for that encounter. Verse 21 of chapter 4. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, See that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. 
so I will kill your firstborn son. It's a shocking moment, isn't it? We can't pretend that it's not. Suddenly, the deep and and terrible consequences of Pharaoh's opposition to Yahweh are brought into sharp focus. We will revisit this many times in the weeks to come. Not least the question of what it means for God to harden Pharaoh's heart. But we must grasp here that that what God declares in these verses is is not a threat of petty tit-for-tat revenge. Rather, it is a pronouncement of the consequences of sin. To oppose this God, to refuse his rule and, and his will, oh, that can only end in judgment and death. You see, this God, who, who is who he is, and who will do what he will do, he cannot leave sin unpunished. Pharaoh has enslaved and, and abused the ancient Israelites. We shall soon see him willfully deny Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. Those actions cannot be ignored and and left without response. Praise God, this God has not made a world where exploitation and oppression and injustice and cruelty go unnoticed. Praise God, I am will act to put wrongs right, to defeat evil, and to free the oppressed. And yet still, I think we're unsettled by that, aren't we? Well, we certainly will be if we listen well to what happens next. Verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time she said, bridegroom bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. Well, friends, if what we read before was shocking, well, then this is just weird, isn't it? Well, maybe to our ears. But I want us to see that this, in fact, is the point in our narrative where the musical motif is perhaps most clearly heard. You see, Yahweh is, is no mere provincial God, just out to, to bash those who threaten his favorites. No, he is the Lord of all. Ruler and and creator, maker and master. And the God who is who he is, well, he is that God to all people. If he will bring judgment on Pharaoh for his sin, then this unchanging God will also bring judgment on Moses for his Moses, too, it, it turns out, had disregarded God's decree had ignored his instruction. Way back in Genesis 17, God had given his people a mark, 
a physical mark to distinguish them and, and to set them apart as the people of his covenant, his promise. That mark was circumcision. Every male child was to have his foreskin removed as a sign that this people were God's own people, his treasured possession. We don't talk about circumcision much, perhaps understandably. If you're here for the first time tonight, don't worry, we really don't talk about it every week. But circumcision was, in and of itself, supposed to be a motif running through the life of the ancient Israelites. A regular and and constant reminder of the God they served and of his mercy towards them. A reminder that they were every bit as deserving of God's judgment as the nations around them. But that in his mercy, by his grace... God had made a way by which his justice might still be satisfied, but that his people might not face death. And that way was blood. The blood of sacrifice. The blood of a substitute. Symbolized in the blood of circumcision. And so that's why it mattered that that Moses hadn't circumcised his son. Not because the presence or absence of a foreskin is particularly important, but because circumcision was the sign that you were part of the covenant people. Part of the people spared God's good and right punishment for sin. Spared by blood. Shed in their place. For Moses not to circumcise his son was for Moses to deny God's chosen means of salvation. To stand in opposition to the great I am. For Pharaoh, that would mean death. And for Moses too. Except that there is a way. And and in her actions here, strange though they may seem to us, Zipporah plays a theme that will echo on through generations that will echo on through to today. Not circumcision in and of itself, but rather the idea of blood as the means of salvation. Moses is spared God's wrath because he is covered with blood. The blood of another. Friends, that is the glorious, wonderful, beautiful motif that we will meet time and time again in this book and that will go running through all of Scripture. This awesome, majestic, holy God will never change and he will always and and forever act with justice and purity, righteousness and goodness, opposed to evil and to all who reject his rule in their lives. So what hope do we have? Only blood. Only blood can save us. 
Those timeless truths will echo on through this great epic of redemption, resurfacing through the generations until one day, until one day in his mercy, Yahweh himself would step in and shed his own blood to save and redeem once and for all. You see, Zipporah's actions, indeed the whole Exodus narrative, was but a foreshadowing of the one who was to come. One who would fully identify with the holy God of ancient Israel and with his sinful and rebellious people. Jesus Christ, on the night he was arrested, declared, I am he. At which point all those with him fell to the ground. They understood what he was saying. That he is the great I am. Who was and who is and who is to come. And yet that same Jesus Christ, just a few hours later, hung on a Roman cross. Bearing the awesome weight of sin. My sin. And yours, if you will put yourself under his mercy. If you will allow yourself to be covered by his blood. The motif of of Exodus runs through to this very day. The great I am still is. And so how will we meet him? Will we choose Pharaoh's path and and bear the terrible consequences ourselves? Or will we, like Moses, cover ourselves with the blood of another that we might meet the great I am as our loving Heavenly Father, reconciled to us by the precious blood of his Son? The Lord, the great I am, has seen. He has heard. He has come down to rescue his people. Will we hear today the beautiful melody of his salvation done his way? And will we rejoice as the elders of the Israelites did? when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Friends, will we hear? Will we bow down? Will we worship? Let's pray. Almighty God, the great I am, that we should come to you and seek your mercy, your forgiveness, your kindness, your friendship. Oh God, we can only do that through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ 
Help us, Lord, to see and to appreciate and to love the beautiful melody of salvation that you have revealed through the ages to your people. And help us as they did that day to bow down and to worship with all of our lives. In Jesus' name.